Chapter Fifteen of the Midnight Passenger by Richard Henry Savage. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Fifteen. Miss Worthington shares her secret. The time of roses had come and gone once more. The woodland was turning to gold again around the beautiful country home of that successful capitalist, Mister John Witherspoon, at Fordham. All the world knew of the stately glories of that recent wedding festivity at Detroit, whereat, under the wedding bell of white blossoms, Miss Francine Delacroix had given her hand to the man whom all envied as he stood before them, the active intellectual champion of Miss Alice Worthington. The serene countenance of the young millionairess was placid, bearing a dignity far beyond her years. When she marshalled the friends of her youth to witness the marriage of the man whose skilful hand now guided the vast eastern interests of the Worthington estate, it was only after the bewildering honeymoon days had passed that Witherspoon, under the advice of Councillor Stillwell and the astute executors, began to gather up all the loose ends of the Clayton affair. The permanent residence of Witherspoon in New York City was exacted by the growing cares of the vast company's interests. And so the young bridegroom had selected a temporary country house until his vivacious helpmeet could be pleased in a choice of their permanent city residence. Unchanged by the possession of his dead friend's fortune, so romantically passed down to him, Witherspoon ceased to try to unravel the dark complications of Hugh Worthington's past. There seemed to be some peculiar restraining influence which sealed the lips of Messrs. Boardman and Warner. And even the great Stillwell, but briefly referred to the strange compact with Ferris, which had seemed to buy the crafty schemer's silence for one hundred thousand dollars. To the astonishment of proud old Detroit, Miss Worthington seemed to show no desire to open her superb palace home to society, and the great world slowly crystallized to the conclusion that she had found a new field in the affairs of the vast estate now absolutely under her control. The beautiful girl seemed to have passed, with a bound, into a mature womanhood, as if some malign influence had swept away all the flowers from her path, and in her daily walks she avoided the scores of gallants who now sought that richly dowered hand. This is not as it should be," finally decided Witherspoon, whose firm hand had cleared up all the aftermath of complications arising from Clayton's murder. Busied with his own affairs. Witherspoon had left the fate of Irma Gluyas, the friendless Leah, and the corrupted boy to Doctor William Atwater, whose frequent visits to Detroit were explained by some vague plan of philanthropic deeds now occupying the mind of Miss Worthington. The meaner subordinates of Fritz Braun's crime were all easily disposed of, for both Lilienthal and Timmins were now serving long sentences for defrauding the United States Customs laws, and the Newport Art Gallery. And the Magdal's Pharmacy were now both matters of ancient history. A mock auction allured the crowd where the drugstore had long gathered the degenerates, and a gaudy bargain bazaar flourished where once Lilienthal's inviting smile had wooed the unwary. And as the pernicious smuggling gang had been routed, smitten hip and thigh, Witherspoon ceased to pry into the still partly veiled past. It was only after Sergeant Dennis McNearney had dropped the very last clue that Witherspoon finally abandoned his settled purpose of tracing down Arthur Ferris's supposed connection with the crime which swept Randall Clayton out of the world. It's no use, sir," muttered the sergeant. "He was capable of anything, 
but he stands clear of the whole thing. The preposterous sergeant had sifted to the very dregs the fullest confessions of the passionate-hearted Hungarian beauty, and the defenseless Leah. The complete history of August Meyer in Brooklyn had been traced out, and McNearney triumphantly demonstrated the uselessness of further search in 192 Late Street. The old mansion had been in every way changed, and the basement was now the abode of swarming celestials, who had tinkered its space up to suit themselves. There were no traces of the crime left. And so, reluctantly, Manager Witherspoon ceased to pry into the private life of Arthur Ferris. McNearney stoutly maintained the thesis to the last, that Ferris and Fritz Braun were strangers. "'The women both prove it,' urged the officer. And yet some still unfathomed game of Ferris made him Clayton's secret enemy. Ferris wanted that beautiful heiress. He wanted to completely estrange and supplant Clayton, and so to reach old Worthington's millions. For that— he clung to the unsuspecting comrade of his bachelor life. Look to the West for light in this. Believe me, if anyone knows, it's Miss Worthington. She is one woman in a million, a woman who does not talk. What do you mean, Dennis? sharply said the young lawyer. The simple policeman stoutly answered, I observe that Miss Alice seemed to have gained a great mastery over Counselor Stilwell and her Detroit lawyers. She was with her father for hours before he died and I'm of the opinion that he told her many things that none of the lawyers even dream of, secrets that perhaps even you do not suspect. I'm only a plain policeman, yet strange schemes are in these millionaires' heads often. The great man had his own private use for Ferris, and for the senator uncle. Who knows what great designs ended with his death? Believe me, she is following out her father's last advice, and if she lets Ferris off easy, you must do the same." As for Fritz Braun, he at first only intended, evidently, to lure poor Clayton into the art gallery, or his own drug store, through this pretty Hungarian, and, from a study of Clayton's habits, change the valises, and so rob him by the old trick, the bunco game. But fortune willed otherwise, and Braun took the chance of Clayton's faith in the girl. He did not know that Clayton was so fondly devoted to the woman. The murder was a sudden inspiration— arising from Clayton's headlong imprudence. And Braun knew nothing of old Worthington's designs, nor Clayton's past history. What more Miss Worthington may know, you will never know, much as she esteems you, until she wills. For she is a very resolute character, and I believe that she is quietly managing Stilwell and the other lawyers in her own way. It's clear to me that both Ferris and Braun use this poor office boy as a spy on Clayton, only for different purposes." As for the two women, they were both mere puppets. Fritz Braun was tempted by the unprotected situation of that vast sum of money going daily to the bank. He easily learned that from the boy's braggadocio talk, and then used the whole circle as a means to entrap Clayton. As for the women, they are both merely what temptation, misery, and surroundings have made them. I'm glad to hear Dr. Atwater say Miss Worthington has some plans for their future. As for the boy— your own design is a wise one. Transport him out west, give him a fair start in some Pacific state in a decent business, and then, if he goes wrong, after his severe lesson, let him run up against a smart punishment. Reluctantly convinced, John Witherspoon dropped 
all his final investigations as to Arthur Ferris's secret career in New York City. As the months rolled along, he saw the justice of the blunt police officer's judgment, for Miss Alice Worthington seemed to be an administering talent of the highest order. "'She would make a secretary of the Treasury, sir,' said the admiring Stilwell. "'She's old beyond her years, a rare woman.' By some vague influence, the personal future designs of Miss Worthington seemed to be a subject tabooed between Witherspoon, his wife, and Dr. Atwater, at the regular weekly dinner at Beechwood, where the young physician was always a stated guest. Miss Worthington, already a lady bountiful in Detroit, conducted a separate correspondence with the young wife, the husband, and the physician, the last her only confident in the still unmatured plans of a practical philanthropy. It was in the early autumn of the year following Randall Clayton's death that Witherspoon sprang up in astonishment when he unfolded the New York Herald over his morning coffee at Beechwood. The cabled announcement of the death of the Honorable Arthur Ferris, United States Consul at Amoy, China, was only supplanted by the statement that he had fallen victim to the coast fever. This is the end of all, sadly mused the lawyer as he saw his immediate duty of reporting the news by telegraph to Detroit. Whatever connection Ferris had with the secret designs of Worthington is now a sealed mystery forever. The hand of death has turned the last page down. Witherspoon rightly conjectured that to Senator Dunham the death of his once-trusted negotiator would be a welcome release from the tyranny of a dangerous past. The statesman's immaculate toga is still unsmirched bitterly commented Witherspoon. And now all of Arthur Ferris's busy schemes have come to naught. His bootless treason, his fruitless intrigue of years, even the hush money on the one side, the blood money on the other, are all alike valueless. He lost every trick in life, even with the cards in his own hands. It was a case of the engineer hoist with his own batard. In vain did Jack Witherspoon await any personal comment from the great heiress. The very name of the dead man was unmentioned in the daily letters from her secretary. When Dr. Atwater returned from one of his now frequent business visits to Detroit, he shook his head in grave negation when Witherspoon brought up the name of the dead counsel. Something very strange there. Even Boardman and Warner seem adverse to any conversation on the subject, soberly said Atwater. I judge that the memory of Ferris is a most distasteful topic to them all. I presume that the papers of old Hugh probably have revived matters, which might as well have been buried in Ferris's lonely grave out there on the shores of the Formosa Strait. It was nearly two months after the cabled announcement when John Witherspoon received a bulky packet from the United States vice Consul at Amoy, China. He had not fully deciphered all the documents when he sprang from his chair and, quitting the trading company's office, hurriedly drove to Dr. Atwater's headquarters. Atwater saw from his friend's face that something of moment had happened. "'Tell me, Jack, what is it?' he answered with a horrible fear. "'Alice!' Witherspoon smiled sadly, as his friend's excitement betrayed the innocent secret of the young physician's heart. "'No, God be praised,' he slowly answered. "'Alice lives to bless some good man's life. But I have here a message from the dead.' and the last legacy of a crime. You must go out instantly to Detroit, for I cannot leave our great interests at this juncture. It seems as if the very grave had opened for this. Dr. Atwater's eyes were dim when he handed the papers back to his friend. 
What could have goaded him on to his unhappy end? What stings and whiplashes of conscience? Let us go carefully over the whole matter together. I will telegraph my departure, and then take tonight's train. The few lines traced by Arthur Ferris's feeble fingers were supplemented by a long and formal letter from the United States Vice Consul at Amoy. The enclosure of a verified copy of the will of Arthur Ferris, duly attested by the Consular seal, was accompanied by a statement that the original and the keys of Ferris's safe deposit box in New York had been duly forwarded to New York through the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. There was a sealed enclosure directed to Miss Alice Worthington, the superscription being faintly discernible in the trembling hand of the fevered patient. As both men gazed silently at each other, they knew that some dark secret lay veiled there under the outspread wings of the American eagle of the consular seal, which duplicated Ferris's private signet. With a strange interest, Atwater read the last sufferings of the unfortunate official. My late superior seemed to be tortured in his mind to his very last moment, wrote the vice-counsel, by the fear that these documents might not safely reach Miss Worthington through you. Be pleased to give me the earliest possible acknowledgment of the receipt of both the certified copy herewith sent and the original with the keys and duly certified order for the delivery of the tin box of the deceased to Miss Worthington herself. Here we dismiss his memory forever between us, solemnly said Witherspoon, as he read aloud Arthur Ferris's last message. It is for her alone to bear him in mind, and to sit in judgment upon him. What unrighted wrong drove him, in remorse, to his lonely grave? I shall never ask an answer of her. In vain did Atwater follow the enigmatic sentences. I leave the fund of one hundred thousand dollars, created for me by my uncle, and the similar sum now due and payable by the Worthington estate, to Alice Worthington, for the foundation of such a charity as she may deem proper. This money is the legacy of a crime and of a wrong. Of a crime, though only contemplated, of which I am not innocent at heart, and of a wrong done, of which Miss Worthington alone shall be the judge. To you, Witherspoon, I can say that every mad scheme which I framed to reach wealth and power has failed miserably, that I have found my soul's unhappiness in the betrayal of poor Clayton's friendship. And yet, as I hope for the forgiveness of an almighty God, I know nothing of his murder, either in the deed or its conception. Let me be forgotten by all the world, forgiven by one alone. The two friends long gazed at each other, in gloomy silence. I leave the whole mystery to you, my friend, at last wearily said the lawyer. I will never try to read between the lines. Take the whole correspondence with you. I have already had a copy made of the vice-counselor's letter and Ferris's own few sentences. I know that Alice will surely consecrate this vile money to some good purpose, and so I make you my ambassador. She will understand why I hope never to hear Ferris's name again, for I know and feel that he was a murderer at heart. Had Clayton missed the snares of the deadly thug who coveted the money which was so criminally exposed, for the golden bribe of the Worthington fortune, Ferris would have sacrificed the only man who stood between him and the millionaire's favor, between him and, perhaps, this orphan girl's hand. And, as sure as the sinner's heir, so sure is the old proverb, the wages of sin is death. I will simply forward any further Amoy enclosures to Miss Worthington for her own action. The drama is done, the curtain has fallen, and the lights are turned out forever. 
Mr. and Mrs. John Witherspoon were enjoying the delights of a continental run a year later, when that bright-eyed young matron, Madame Francine, read to her delighted husband the account given by Miss Worthington of the opening of the Free Hospital and Orphan's Home, to which the young heiress had dedicated the estate of the unfortunate Ferris, as well as a large sum set aside by herself. The Witherspoons were in the far Niente, floating on the Grand Canal in beautiful Venice, when the young beauty selected Alice's letter from a sheaf handed to them by the porter of the Hotel Danielli, who pursued them in a gondola. The married lovers were now on their way to the Nile and the eternal glow of its cloudless skies. Witherspoon listened with mock gravity until he suddenly interrupted. "'What does she say of Atwater?' "'Nothing,' answered the merry matron. "'It's all about the grand opening of the home.' "'Then it's all right,' calmly answered Jack, lighting a cigar and leaning back under the party-colored awning. "'When a woman says nothing about a man, it's surely all right. I can wait.' wait patiently, till her philanthropic fever abates. I suppose that we will hear something at the first cataract, or at Khartoum, or some other remote spot, possibly where the lion basks upon the tomb of the ruined Palmera. There is a happy crisis approaching, in the near future, as the swell journals say. There were many interesting details lost to the runaway lovers by their wanderings, but the essential facts finally reached them in Calcutta, on their homeward way around the world. Neither Alice Worthington, nor the man who was now her co-adjudicator in many noble works, could ever exactly recall the sequence of the events which had prolonged indefinitely Atwater's stay in Detroit. But it happened upon a winter evening, when the great Worthington mansion was silent, and Mrs. Hayward, Alice's duenna, and General Almoner, had artfully stolen away, leaving the unconscious lovers together. The successful working of the hospital and home was now assured beyond doubt. Atwater, gazing out into the glowing embers of the great fireplace, slowly said, as the musical chime of the silver bells of the mantel clock sounded ten, "'And now I feel that Messrs. Boardman and Warner can oversee your local medical board, and keep the institution from lapsing into the dry rot of a purely charitable organization.' "'I fear for nothing,' he said, smiling faintly, "'as long as you are here to watch it. And,' he hastily added, "'certainly you can trust Irma Gluyas.' That poor woman finds a fiery zeal from her past sorrows spurring her on. She is a faithful assistant manageress. And even Leah Einstein has her humble merit as a sterling housekeeper. But you must have Jack carefully watch over that boy out in the West. Young Emil needs a firm hand, and only Witherspoon can hold him down to usefulness. "'Why are you telling me all these things?' suddenly said Alice Worthington, her cheeks paling in a strange dismay. Because, the young man said slowly, I have long desired to follow out a special line of medical investigation in Vienna. I have the two years yet before I reach thirty, in which I propose to make my mark in original research, or else return to New York to my old routine, fortified by the contact of the ablest medical minds in the world. That is impossible. You shall not go! suddenly cried Alice Worthington with pallid cheeks aflame with sudden blushes. Her bosom was heaving in some strange tumult as Atwater took her trembling hands in his own. "'It would be so hard for me to say good-bye,' he almost whispered, "'that I have decided to write you from New York. I have already secured my passage on the Paris.' "'And you will not allow me to recompense you for all you have done?' whispered Alice, 
bravely struggling to keep back her tears. Yes, I will, resolutely answered Atwater. Go on lifting up the lowly, bind up their bruised hearts, and all good men will bless your name. That will be my reward. Wait a moment, faltered Alice as she sped away. Left alone in the room, Atwater, gazing into the fire, listened for the returning footfall of the woman whose face had long haunted his pillow. "'You alone, of all the world,' said the beautiful woman as she glided to his side. "'You alone are entitled to my confidence. Only you should know the story of my life.' She handed him the letter which had been Arthur Ferris's eternal farewell to the woman who had never even borne his name. He started forward, with arms extended, as he read that last message from beyond the sea. It means that I am to keep your innocent secret. There is nothing hidden now, the loving woman shyly said. It means that you are not to go. They were still tranced there in their happiness when the silver bells chimed out again. The ruddy firelight lit up their faces, glowing with the hidden love which had at last found its voice as the shadow of parting fell upon them. Alfidershane, dearest heart, cried Atwater, we will lead the noble life together, please God, to the end. Hand in hand, and heart to heart, whispered the loving woman, whose happy eyes saw no cloud of the past now lowering upon her. And, even in the flush of the new-born joy, she was true to her solemn vow. No shame rests upon my father's name, she murmured that night in her prayers. The works that men do live after them and in his name I will build up a monument of good works over the tomb where the secret of his life's temptation lies buried with him. The gleaming stars shone down tenderly upon the happy lover speeding homeward, for the bells of joy were ringing in his awakened heart. I must try and get these glad tidings to our wanderers abroad, mused Atwater. And this, stripped of some merely personal happenings, with a gracious confirmation by Alice, was the budget of good news which greeted the Witherspoons on their arrival at Calcutta. Jack, joyously cried Madame Francine, I have only been waiting for this official confirmation for some months. Alice writes me to hasten back so as to be the star guest of the coming wedding. I have had a firm faith also, dryly rejoined her husband, that in due time Alice's field of philanthropy would enlarge itself to include our friend. And so, it's all well that ends well. Here's for home, then, when you will. End of chapter 15 And End of the Midnight Passenger by Richard Henry Savage Read by Mary Ann Spiegel, Chicago, Illinois, April 2011